In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. Please be seated. Reflexes are coming back, kicking back in. <laughs> in those moments when I am in between tasks at home and my first instinct is, is just to grab my phone for a little shot of dopamine to keep me from being alone with my thoughts or feelings, there's a strange little phrase that I say to myself in order to resist. I stop and I just say, there is no joy to be found there. Now, I know that's a little bit heavy-handed uh, for just trying to kick the habit of binging on social media, but I've found that I actually have to be a little over the top in order to redirect my habits from the things that are easy towards the things that are good. This morning, I'm going to be talking about expectations and effort and pursuing the things that are life-giving. There are high expectations just under the surface when we read the Gospels. Jesus didn't attract crowds in a vacuum. He attracted people who were living in anticipation. They were eagerly awaiting the fulfillment of the promises of God. And what Jesus was doing and saying suggested that they might get to see it in their own lifetime. You can see the excitement in the air in the first chapters of Luke, where Mary and Zechariah and Elizabeth and Simeon are all overjoyed when they realize exactly what it was that was happening in their midst. And in response, we get all of these wonderful songs of poetry that we call the Magnificat, the Benedictus, and the Nunc Dimittis, praises to God for how he was fulfilling the promises that was made to Israel and its ancestors. So we have to remember these high expectations when the crowds are gathering to hear Jesus' parables, including the parable of the sower that we heard this morning. This picture of God as a farmer planting crops had already been used in both Isaiah and Jeremiah. Planting seed and harvesting is a picture of how God would redeem and save his people. So the day of the Lord is often compared to a day of harvest. It's actually a comparison that Jesus uses in other parables. But he uses it in a way they didn't expect. Instead of planting, protecting, and in time reaping the crops, Jesus says as well that there is a problem in the soil itself. Suddenly, the story isn't just about how God would come and save. Jesus undercuts some of the expectations of how God was going to act and reveals some problems that maybe they didn't know existed. See, the problem with expectations is that, is that they can get in the way of really hearing what God is trying to tell us. We're resistant to hear information we don't like, and we gravitate towards those who tell us what we want to hear. And beyond facts, we also tend to pursue the habits and ways of living that make us comfortable, things that numb us instead of heal us. It is human nature to keep on drinking spiritual salt water, getting rid of the initial craving for water, but never properly quenching and satisfying our thirst. In fact, in some ways, that's exactly what sin is. If sin weren't fun, we would never do it. Sin promises an initial payout, but as a deformed version of goodness, it can never truly bring life. This is what Paul is talking about when he contrasts the flesh and the spirit in Romans 8. He's not trying to compare the material with the immaterial world. If the material world, the physical world, was inherently bad, then Jesus' vindication wouldn't have been a resurrection. It would have been an apparition. He wouldn't have been given a new body. He would have just been a very special spirit. But flesh, as Paul is using it here, is the corruptibility and the rebellion of the old self. And when he invokes slavery and debt 
and the children of God, he's calling to mind the story of the Exodus, when the children of God were delivered from slavery in Egypt and then needed to be led through the wilderness. And just like the Israelites in the wilderness, we must be led as well, because the way forward isn't always clear, or because the way forward is clear but difficult, maybe impossible. We need to be led because on the road without a guide, it isn't always obvious whether we are traveling the way that leads to death or the way that leads to life. The destination, the end goal, or the fruitfulness that Jesus promises that good soil will yield can and often will look different from our expectations. When I listen to stories from mature Christians whom I admire, I regularly hear of how God was active in ways they could have never predicted. The thing that we can count on is the fact that God is faithful, not how he will choose to show us that faithfulness. For Isaiah's audience, the Jews in Babylon would have never guessed that the way in which God would fulfill his promises to end the exile would come through the actions of a Persian conqueror, and yet that's exactly how it happened. It's one reason why looking back to recall and remind ourselves of the ways God has acted in our lives before is such an important practice. Not because it gives us a chance to predict God's actions, but it reminds us that God does act, and it gives us confidence and hope that he'll do it again, and maybe even prepares us to expect the unexpected. But having eyes to see and ears to hear, to be led takes work. Cultivating good soil takes work. This morning we read a parable from Jesus and then the explanation that he gives to his disciples But in between those readings, Jesus explains why he spoke in parables, which was to obfuscate, to make things confusing. Because parables are like mazes in which the challenge is part of the design. Jesus wasn't a bad communicator in need of an editor to tell him, that illustration didn't make sense, try one that's simpler. The effort required to understand him is a feature of the design, not a flaw. Dallas Willard says this, We must stop using the fact that we cannot earn grace, whether for justification or sanctification, as an excuse for not energetically seeking to receive grace. The gifts of God aren't received passively. They're received in faith, working itself out in our lives in the power of the Spirit. So what does it look like to energetically seek to receive grace? Well, one place to start is to spend a few moments in the dirt, as it were, thinking about the kinds of problems in each soil type from this parable. First, there's the seed that falls on the path that the devil comes and snatches up. As I was reflecting, I was thinking that I tend to mistake discernment for simply distinguishing whether what I'm hearing is true or false, that the work of discernment is just fact assessments. Of course, that's a crucial piece of discernment. But it's helpful for me to recognize that it's also taking asking yourself who it is that is speaking. Is the voice that I'm listening to, is the voice that I'm hearing coming from God, from myself, or the devil? It's not for nothing that Satan means the accuser. And so when the voice inside your head is going beyond a recognition of fault and it moves from guilt, I'm recognizing a wrong that I've done, into shame, I'm worthless because of it, we need to call out that voice for what it is. Shame doesn't come from God. Shame comes from an accuser, and God doesn't make junk. 
I think it's important for us to recognize this value of discernment so that the word of God as it falls doesn't fall on a path and never takes root. So the good news actually finds its way into our hearts. Now the rocky soil, the lesson there is about longevity. The race we run is a marathon, not a sprint. And the enthusiasm we feel upon hearing good news must be supplemented with the persistent work of deepening roots. And not only good news at the moment of conversion, which we sometimes think is the only moment for receiving it, but as we again and again hear and encounter God's grace throughout our lives. Repentance doesn't just happen once, it happens all the time. Now that work is slow, and you only notice it when the roots are tested. But without that work, there's no way to withstand the time of trial. So part of it is working slowly. Now, the thorny ground does allow crops to grow, but it also allows other things to come alongside it. And we should note, especially in the western suburbs, that Jesus invokes not just the generic cares of the world, but also the lure of wealth. And that could be a whole sermon on its own. We tend to think that if we aren't jumping into vaults of money like Scrooge McDuck, we're free and clear of greed. No problems here. But putting your trust in money, loving money more than anything else, can affect any of us, no matter what our net worth is. And that problem has a unique ability to choke out the work that God wants to do in our lives. For Paul, living according to the flesh is contrasted with living according to the spirit, living how God calls us, putting to death the sins that plague us. And as he said a few chapters earlier, considering ourselves dead to sin and alive to Christ. And so his charge to the Roman church is this, which one are we focused on? Which one is your mind set on? Upon which of these things have you formed your life? Now, so far, I've been talking a lot about us, answering the question, what should we be doing in light of the passages that we read this morning? But I want to take a step back and answer a question that we should always consider when we read the Bible. The biblical audience, by and large, didn't have a problem with too few gods, that is zero, but too many. So for the initial readers of our texts, in the ancient Near East and in polytheistic Rome, the question is, what is your God like? So I want to finish with that question. What is God like? And what I see in our texts this morning is that growing in faith requires our effort and it requires us to let go of our expectations so God can lead us, but that God really wants that for us. God desires good for us. He's not an impartial judge just waiting to see how we respond, but a father who's looking down and wanting his children to thrive. The biblical authors regularly ask how long until God's justice comes down, but delays in God's justice are always chances for people to repent. Jonah refused to preach in Nineveh because even though his message was of judgment, he knew full well that the people would respond, repent, and that God would have mercy. That is what our God is like. As Paul writes in Romans, the spirit of God dwells in our mortal bodies and gives us life. We are declared to be justified, found to be in the right, because the resurrection of Jesus is working itself out in our lives. In our reading from Isaiah this morning, God calls for the people to forsake their wickedness so that God could have mercy on them and abundantly pardon them. He opens with this plea, Why do you spend your money on that which is not bread and labor for that which does not satisfy? 
You can just picture God seeing the Israelites gulping down their salt water and longing for them to instead take up the things that truly satisfy their thirst and give them true and abundant life. The rich food that they should have been indulging in is listening to and following God who invites them, incline your ear and come to me. In Jesus' parable, the good soil produces 30, 60, 100 times over. All are invited to turn to God and find that his ways are so much better than the path we would travel on our own. So what is God like? God loves us so much that as we pursue the things that never truly feed us, he never stops calling and inviting us to the table to feast on truly rich food. But the path can look difficult. And it can seem that the way of the cross offers no more than a gamble, betting that even though what we're called to do is miserable, it'll pay off in the end. That there's just some delayed gratification on the other side. Well, in response to that, I want to reread from Romans 8. Paul says this, So then, brothers and sisters, we are debtors, not to the flesh, to live according to the flesh. For if you live according to the flesh, you will die. Now, at this point, he's introduced this idea that we're going to be debtors to something, just not the flesh. But it sort of seems like as he develops this idea, he gets sidetracked and his metaphor changes. So he starts with debtors, but then he goes on, But if by the Spirit you put to death the deeds of the body, you will live. For all who are led by the Spirit of God are children of God. For you did not receive a spirit of slavery to fall back into fear, but you have received a spirit of adoption. When we cry, Abba, Father, it is that very Spirit bearing witness with our spirit that we are children of God. And if children, then heirs, heirs of God and joint heirs with Christ. If in fact we suffer with him so that we may be glorified with him. From the outside, being led by the Spirit looks just like a different kind of slavery. Just like Bob Dylan told us, you're going to have to serve somebody. But once you're in, you discover that you aren't a slave at all. You're an adopted child, the daughter or son of God, who by the very Spirit dwelling inside of us calls out with terms of endearment to the creator of the universe who cares for us and loves us and more than anything wants life for us. True life that begins even now as we seek him. Paul recognizes that, in fact, it's difficult. That's why he says, if, in fact, we suffer with him so that we may be glorified with him, God loves us so much that even the things that are most difficult, he promises to transform for his good. I don't want to preempt the next preachers who will get to preach on the end of Romans 8, but go ahead and read ahead. See what God does with the groaning and the suffering of this world. He wants to redeem it. So let us energetically seek to receive grace because God is eager to give it. Because God's ways are so much higher than our ways, if we would just give up spending our money on the things that are not bread, if we would quit drinking salt water and come to the one who can offer us living water and rich food without money, without price. I'll close with the end of our psalm this morning as God, as the psalmist describes God's favor. You crown the year with your goodness, and your paths overflow with plenty. The fields of the wilderness are rich in pasture, and the little hills rejoice on every side. The folds shall be full of sheep. The valleys also shall stand so thick with grain that they shall laugh and sing. Amen.